Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. What's up, listeners, and welcome to this edition of the Feeling Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me, ready to fight against the powers of evil and darkness, or at least those of the rock and roll 80s, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Well, I don't know. Part of that lifestyle was a little bit appealing, Patrick. (laughs) Maybe the motorcycles, but nothing else. I don't know if I want to be a frog, brother. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this installment finds us covering our October donor pick, centered around vampires. Our faithful donors voted, and Joel Schumacher's The Lost Boys came out on top. Kind of a surprise, kind of not, based on the other entries in that list for our donors to pick. But still, you know, the donors have spoken, and this is what we got. So before we get into the big spoilery part of our conversation, we'll go ahead and start with our one-word takeaways. Aaron, what do you got? I'm going to go with the word blended. This is one of the first teen vampire thrillers, and it blends horror and humor and visual style and a ton of gore and a little bit of mystery and some eroticism. And it somehow manages to do all of that and be scary, but it never fully crosses the line into campy either it dabbles it dips its toes if you will for sure but it never fully commits to the scare side it never fully commits to the campy side and it ends up in this mixture that is fairly unique at the time especially and so i think it's a nice balance of genres and i think that because of that it appeals to a wide range of tastes for movie going folks Uh, It's dripping with that sexy style, like I mentioned. It's got reserved bursts of gory violence, but it's got awesome dialogue along the way, even when it is campy. And it's got this childlike adventureness to it that I liken to The Goonies, which makes sense, considering that Richard Donner was originally going to direct this, and that was the direction he was going to go. And then it's mixed with this more adult and carnal rawness of vampirism that we would see in something like from tusk till dawn, which is exactly the angle that Joel Schumacher brought to this when he came on and took over the directing chair. So it's fun, not too frightening. And the lines are delivered with impeccable timing. And frankly, I found it to have extremely little deeper substance this time around when it comes to any sort of relationship development, but it is cool, Patrick. It is oh so cool and so much fun. These are the films that I think the value add is simply just experiencing the story as a whole. And, you know, listeners, when we talk about movies on our show, we always look for that emotional takeaway. And the fact is every movie does make us feel something, but it doesn't have to be something that's like riveting or life changing. We'd love it to do that, and we always kind of gravitate towards the movies that really do hit us in those emotional feels, but sometimes you can have a film that is purely there for the entertainment factor, which is why we go see movies anyway, to be entertained first and foremost. Education, enlightened, whatever else comes after that, that's just bonus. And The Lost Boys 
is one of those movies that I think being Joel Schumacher entertainment is the primary reason for watching this movie. The word I came away with was excess. And I think when you watch a movie like this, especially in light of other vampire movies in the genre, other horror movies or campy comedy, whatever you're picking up on from your blended one more takeaway, there's an excess to all of it. I mean, we're talking about big hair 80s, motorcycles, rock and roll, everything that I think would define a portion of the 80s, not my 80s necessarily in terms of what I embrace, but definitely something I recognize. You come away with the Lost Boys and then you wrap that around a vampire story that feels somewhat kind of tongue in cheek at times. It really does feel like a slice of life when it comes to that decade of movies that we saw like The Goonies or Red Dawn. Movies that had those elements that attracted us to characters, to archetypes, to different things. And I think what Joel Schumacher does really well in this movie is he just dives deep into the world of excess. Everything about this movie feels just kind of over the top, but not to a point of being like too much. I got kind of a John Carpenter vibe from watching this, like The Thing, where you're using some practical effects, using some kind of moments of grossness, moments of like freak out, combined with this gritty color palette. And I remember just thinking, wow, what was this like for me when I watched it the first time or the second or third time? This was clearly a movie that I remember watching growing up. So watching it as an adult was uh, definitely a, a different experience. But yes, excess was the word that I think sums up my experience this time around. Very good one. It's fitting in all of the different blended categories that I mentioned. <laughs> It's nice when our one-word takeaways kind of marry up with each other. They blended. <laughs> Sorry. Excessively blended. Okay, oh. Okay. <laughs> well, here would be our spoiler portion of the show. So, this is this a pirate yourself, movie now? Are we? Are you I back just, in the Goonies? What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. It could be anything. It's blended, right? <laughs> it's also close to Halloween, and I think you know you have to talk with the pirate at some point during the Halloween season, I guess. I've never heard that in my life, but okay. Whatever. It's just me. I don't work with me, Aaron. Work with me. Pirate Pirate Day. International Pirate. It's actually Cat Day. There's a lot, of, a lot of international cat days, but today is one of the many national or international cat days. So our cats go. Carry on. Wow. Woo. All right. This is where we talk spoiler stuff about the movie. Can't even. I'm going off script now. So if you haven't seen the movie, do yourself a favor. Block out an hour and a half of your life and check this out. Come back and join the conversation. It's probably going to get crazy, apparently, because <laughs> we're talking like pirates and cats. <laughs> Anything goes at this point. All right. What is your history with this film in particular, Aaron? Uh, in terms of, was this something you had a rewatch factor when you were growing up? Uh, or was it like one and done? So I love this softball question for the first one. <laughs> so, so simple. <laughs> it's a history question. I don't have to think. No, actually, I did not have a strong history with the Lost Boys. I know the Lost Boys. I've seen the Lost Boys. I'm sure that I've seen it multiple times, at least in pieces, because 
it has become a cult classic. And it's one of those films that people generally like to talk about being a favorite in a lot of circles that people will talk about the princess bride at times or fight club and just other certain movies that kind of get brought up the lost boys, especially when you talk about vampires, somebody's going to bring up the lost boys. Uh, and that's because of what it did for the genre as a whole at the time and what it, how it stuck out in the time that it was made. And for me, it wasn't something that I discovered at a young age and was like, this is my vampire movie. I love it. I'm all over this. In fact, I don't think I fell in love with vampire movies for quite a many year until now. I absolutely obsess over them. So it was really not something that I remembered much about. I remembered Kiefer Sutherland and his mullet. I remember the two Corys because there was a run of movies in the 80s that had the two Corys, Feldman and Haim. License to Drive is the other one that sticks out big time. I remembered it being a little over the top and hard-edged. I remembered a little bit rock and roll, if you will. But I didn't remember anything about the plot or any specific character beats. I'd forgotten about the two brothers being the main kids. I'd forgotten how quickly it moves through the story and what the whole premise really was about other than there's a vampire cult on on the boardwalk and they are trying to get someone else into their midst. And I remembered cry little sister featuring prominently in this film, which by the way, holds up a hundred percent as does the uh, strange song. What's it called? Uh, People are strange. I don't know what it's actually called strange things or something but whatever the actual name of that song is that plays during the credits is perfect the musical choices in this film i remembered it having a great soundtrack and i found that to be something that 100 percent was still intact like it even watching it 30 years later 33 years later the musical choices are perfect well i'll tell you i grew up with this movie this was part of i guess a catalog of films that my mom I don't know what she was thinking. Exposed me to in terms of like she just that's loves very horror. surprising. So it, I did not is, know that right? about your mom, and never so, ever would have guessed that. So we're gonna get on the psychology couch for a second, and I'll tell you probably some of the trauma that I have with the horror genre that I'm slowly kind of coming out of is the fact that my mom willingly let me watch The Lost Boys, Friday the Thirteenth, Nightmare on Elm Street. You know these movies that as a 9, 10, 11 year old was not probably the best thing to be watching, but she loves horror. I think she still does. I'm not sure, but this was a part of my childhood. And looking back on it, I never really found an appeal for vampire movies. Really never have. And it's like anime. I'm going to probably have to spend a season working through picks from people on what vampire movies should I watch. Because it's just not my my thing. You couple that with horror being not my favorite genre, and it makes it difficult for me to gravitate towards anything. But The Lost Boys was really one of those things that did that. And I think it's because of the fact that it wasn't just a vampire movie. That it was a, maybe it's a, it doesn't take place in high school, but it's with high school kids. We're talking about a quintessential 80s cast of iconic actors you know yeah right the the quarries were were part of this the other movie that i think um i remember was dream a little dream another weird movie with both of them at the helm and you had Kiefer sutherland being Kiefer sutherland in in his best 
teenage way. Like I remember him getting his renaissance with the show 24 and all I could think through that first season was when is the vampire going to come out? When is he going to start attacking people? It comes across to me as a very nostalgic movie. And so I think it's difficult to say, does this hold up? For me, it does. It's one that I don't necessarily put on my rewatch list every year, but it's one that if I had to put a vampire movie in, it would probably be the one. And I think it's because of the fact that it blends all those things that you talked about earlier, Aaron, as well as putting together a pretty, pretty decent story in terms of creating a little bit of mythology. I didn't remember before watching this time some of those little details of how Michael gets integrated into this world and what he would have to do to become a full-fledged vampire. Some of the initiation, the fraternity kind of flavor that we get, I thought was pretty cool. The fact that he essentially has to face his fear by hanging from this the bottom of some train tracks and then eventually fall and then of course he doesn't die he ends up on his bed the next day i guess it's like 2 p.m in the afternoon and so he starts seeing some of these elements of vampirism come out but not to a point of being classic like dracula the fangs or wings or, or whatever we see kind of this modern take on what would it be like if vampires not only lived among us, but they were teenagers. And I think that Schumacher does a fantastic thing here by saying, this is what you don't want. You don't want teenagers running around, but you especially don't want teenagers who are also vampires running around because the world can not take those two things all to, you know, both together. And I think that's probably this time around what made The Lost Boys appealing to me is the fact that it sort of is very much aware of the fact that it feels like a comic book, almost. It's like, okay, if we're going to create a story, we might as well get somewhat eccentric. Uh, I think that was the other word that I was thinking about for my one more takeaway. And I think that's what makes The Lost Boys this different kind of vampire movie, is the fact that it plays with some of the traditional elements of the vampire world, but it also intermixes it with this notion that if you put this kind of power in the hands of teenagers, let's see what can happen. Did you pick up on anything like that? Or did you see it as kind of standing out among other vampire movies that you've watched? Absolutely. Even to this day, I think its influence is absolutely present in the genre, the subgenre of vampire movies as it exists. And I agree with you. I enjoyed quite a bit the way in which vampirism is revealed in this movie. It is, interestingly, a slow burn of powers, even though the situation is moving extremely fast. How Sam is like, hi, I'm Kiefer Sutherland, and want to go on this ride, and then you're a vampire. Like, I mean, it is bam, bam, bam. But the way in which things go on, I love the depiction of them as well, because it's very subtle. It's got the... Chinese scene where he sees maggots and he sees worms in both of the Chinese things like which without the film going into any sort of exposition is a way of explaining the idea of glamoring right and making you see a thing that isn't actually 
there or see something different than the way that it really looks. The way that you said they hung and then they fall. And so that's kind of his first experience with flying. And it's done real dark and in the clouds. And you really, as a viewer, you're in the same position as Sam. You don't know what's going on. It's very um, delirious for you as a viewer. You're just sort of like kind of trying to figure it out. And then it interweaves that with that comedy of explaining things like the dog. The dog is something I picked up on because the dog in this movie is one of your first hints of who is a vampire. The dog in the store, the video store, when they first meet Max, immediately Nanook starts barking at the Lost Boys when they walk in. Later on, when Nanook notices that Michael is a vampire, that's your clue. So the film does a great job of like doing those visual cues Schumacher does without actually having us sit there and be explained to, which I love your point about looking like a comic book. Yeah. And it's self-aware. It understands that that's what the frog brothers are there to do. They're there to put a comic book in the hand of Sam and be like, here, read this. This is how, and it goes through those traditional things about vampirism, but then it doesn't bring those back until the very end. That's one of the things I think it does differently. And that I love is it is reserved. It's, it's actually, it's an interesting blend because it shows you violence right off the top, the very first scene, but it doesn't show it to you. Like violence happens, so you know that it's occurring in this area, and then it happens pretty closely after that again, but it takes forever for the actual vampires to show themselves, to become these gross, terrifying-looking creatures, and for blood to start flying. And I think that that works to the film's benefit, because it spends time on the first part of the movie's tagline, which is sleep all day, party all night, never grow old, right? Never die. It's fun to be a vampire. That's what it said. And it wants you to think that. It wants you to question that. Like Michael is should be in this place where he's debating. He's a little bit, you know, he's been tricked into becoming a vampire by drinking the blood in the first place. And he does it out of a sense of ego. I also think it's really cool that this plays with the Lost Boys idea. Because the Lost Boys are from Peter Pan, right? The boys in Neverland that never grew up. But in this film, it's kind of twisted. Because it's like a battle. It's like Max battling to get Michael into this group. Um, and it, it's just, it's a really cool thing, man, because the way it changed the cultural depiction of vampires into sexy, sleek teens, it, you know, that's where Buffy the Vampire Slayer eventually comes along because of this movie. That's why Twilight exists because of this movie. Um, so it's got, it's got a lot going for it in terms of, it's just incredibly watchable. It, it takes the heavy drama out of it. By moving so fast. And it was a little jarring for me because I was watching it for the podcast thinking, well, we got to talk about this on the emotional level like we usually break things down. And it's not there because it's the drama is not meant to be there in that way. But boy, I could sit there and watch this and have a smile on my face and enjoy the heck out of it over and over and over and over. And so that's my kind of emotional appeal for this from this movie is just the, the feeling of fun. I get it, you know? Yeah. 
Well, the fact that this is a movie straight from the 80s and it's pure 80s, complete with big hair and big haired vampires to go with it. Does that affect that rewatchability for you beyond just the nostalgia? It sounds like it doesn't. It sounds like that is really more of just a plus one. It doesn't seem to take away from your overall appeal of the movie because of the fact that we're not looking for something that's crazy in depth, like Interview with the Vampire or Bram Stoker's Dracula or things like that. No, I think it's actually subtle to an extent to the point where, you know, it's depicting the culture, but it's not playing on the 80s culture over and over and over in a way that a lot of more what I would call campy movies that sort of turn me off about the 80s. When you focus on the fact that they're in the 80s, this just feels it feels more to me like I'm just watching a movie from a time capsule. Whereas sometimes you watch a movie and you're like, hey, this movie really understands what year it is and is trying to focus on that. If it's being made after the fact, maybe like movies that try to depict the 80s but weren't made in the 80s. This just felt like, hey, this is what people look like at the time. And yeah, you know what? I'm that guy. I went and Googled the sexy, buffed up, oiled saxophone player to find out who this guy was. He's like a stud saxophone player who was like famous with Tina Turner as a saxophonist and all kinds of stuff. Like those kind of things, I think, are fun because they're like reference points that no other movie has. And, you know, it didn't it didn't overstay its welcome for me in the eighties way at all. Like I said, the soundtrack lived up and that was the most eighties thing about it. I think the time capsule analogy that you gave is spot on because of the fact that it's not trying to be from a certain time period. It's telling a story of vampires living on the boardwalk in a time period that is then. And I think that the same thing could be said if you redid it today it wouldn't rely on the fact that it's 2020 living in COVID or the you know late nineties or whenever it would be remade. It's not relying on the time period in order to actually give it value. It's a story that I think could live independently, no matter what time period it was, because teenagers are always going to be teenagers and vampires as a mythology are very much something that's very familiar to a lot of people. Even if you don't like horror movies or don't like monster movies, you know about Dracula. You know the basic rules about vampires. Right. Well, that's what I'm telling you. Twilight exists because of this movie. Twilight is teenagers who are vampires, and they're living it up. They're enjoying the lives as vampires. They play a baseball game where they get to show off their powers and have fun. It's one of my favorite scenes in the first movie. Like, that's where this comes from, right? And it's depicting sort of a similar aesthetic in a way to what it's like to be a teenage vampire in its time, right? In the 2000s versus in the 1980s. And right. that's fine. So yeah, yeah I think that, I, I think it holds up really well. Yeah, I do too. And you're right. The soundtrack is killer. I, I think it is so memorable. Two things I remember taking away from my f- watch as a little kid. One, I didn't want to go to state fairs after watching this movie because I was afraid that vampires would come down and attack me late at night, you know, especially if it was at night that I was at the state fair. So I always go in the daytime, PSA from, from your old friend Patch. Also, the thou shalt not, that whole thing, that chanting, that that whatever you call it, sounded so creepy and it reminded me a lot of the, a similar kind of chant from Nightmare on Elm Street. So anytime I hear that, I'm like, oh, it just gives me the creep. So 
definitely have flashbulb memories of those two types of things. And so anytime the state fair comes around to Arkansas, I'm like, I don't want to go at, the, at night. I'm going to stay in the daytime. We'll just go during the day. It's cool. That's hilarious. <laughs> As we were getting ready for the show, I, I found this really great article from The Atlantic that was doing kind of a commentary on the movie because it was turning, and this was back in 2017, it was turning 30 years old. Wow, it's crazy. And one of the things that the author points out is the fact that this movie, even though there's not a lot of, quote, substance to it, there are some really cool themes of looking at this idea of family and kinship. Something that, you know, we watch movies like Blended, we watch Step Brothers, you know, all these movies that explore what it's like to have friends as your family, you know, friends of the family that you choose, that kind of thing. And what it hit on was the fact that at the time when this movie came out, the world of at least the U.S. was starting to emit this kind of uber conservatism. Jerry Falwell was at the forefront of a lot of like moralistic campaigning and the United States politically was really pushing towards this kind of ultra conservative mentality where the nuclear family, mom, dad, brother, sister, dog, cat, whatever, that was the right way to be. That was the thing. And what Schumacher does here that I find really interesting in light of that backdrop is that the 80s were a time of that, but this kind of goes counterculture to it. And what we find are these handful of relationships in The Lost Boys that kind of explore that. Obviously, the relationship with Sam and Michael and and their mom, you know, they're, she's divorced. We don't hear really much about dad at all. They're moving to a new city to start over. So that's something that's very different from what the culture was kind of preaching at the time. Uh, I think Diane West is a treat. I love movies that she's in. I think she's fantastic. And um, and then we get into David and his gang of vampires. It's like fraternity, as I mentioned earlier, where they have this common ground of not only being vampires and really not being vampires. That's really kind of a, a bonus, but about being just loners. Like all these guys, we never see their parents, save David. And we find that out later in the movie. But I think Schumacher handles this idea of asking the question, what does family look like? What does kinship and where does that value really live? And I think he's saying that it exists in the people that you can put your trust in, people that you can really find that common ground. And that's a very simple idea. It's one that's been explored over and over and over again. But I find it interesting that this movie and these ideas started coming around at the height of a decade where the United States was really pushing, look, if you don't have two parents, you're probably going to fail. And you really don't know what family's like unless you have this nuclear family intact. And I thought, this is an interesting way to look at it. And what Michael is looking for, obviously he's got a crush on Star, but I think even before he becomes a vampire, there's something appealing about David and his boys that that make Michael kind of gravitate towards that. And then 
you know, Sam's relationship with him starts becoming severed. So we see this kind of love-hate relationship. This is a relationship I had with my brother. You know, he was four years older than me. I was never hanging around with him and his friends. I was always that annoying little brother. But when he would get in trouble or when he would feel like he was like on the edge, you know, <laughs> about to get in trouble, that brotherly kinship would manifest itself and I would want to protect him. I would want to do that. And I think Schumacher really plays that out well with Sam and Michael's relationship. And did you see any of that with, with your watch, any of these relationships that stood out to you that kind of reflected that? Man, that was pretty good. Uh, I appreciate your uh, deeper take on it. Cause like I said, in my Lord takeaway, the lack of deep relationships was definitely something that I thought stuck out for me watching this time around. I enjoy the way in which Sam and Michael's relationship progresses. I think that, yeah, by the end, there are a couple of moments in the movie where I get that feeling that you're talking about of Sam genuinely wanting to save Michael. But there's enough of the movie played for comedy where Sam is like, I'm going to kill this dude, like that. It's a little harder for me to feel so strongly about him trying to save his brother. It's conflicting, you know, because he sees him as a vampire immediately and he's, he's quick to be like, let's, you know, whatever. But then he's like, oh, he's my brother, you know? So I, I, I like that. I do like how it plays out. And I like that, you know, as a young teenager, you're going to be questioning what you feel on a regular basis. And Sam gives us that the kind of going back and forth, like, we need to do something. He's a vampire. I'm scared to death. And then he's like, but no, I don't want to kill him. <laughs> you know, but like, well then what is the option here, Sam? And he's like, I don't know, but he's my brother, but I don't want to kill him, you know, and I don't want to die and don't want to become a vampire. So I like that he does give that to us. David and the gang of vampires are a problem for me as far as like connecting to the film and caring about them in any way, shape or form. One thing I noticed, Alex Winter is in this movie. I didn't actually think Alex Winter was in any other movies. Other than Bill and Ted. So that was surprising to me. But the other guys, they don't talk like ever. I mean, they have a couple lines at the very end of the movie kind of time, but like they don't, there's, they're not characters. They are in the background. They are just walking around as pieces that are like an entourage to David. And so it was tough for me to kind of have any sense of the whole gang as a, a group to care for or to have some sort of empathy for in any shape, shape or fashion. I, I just saw David and David didn't present himself as someone that I wanted to have empathy for either. Uh, you know, he was pretty straightforward in the way that he lived his life and what he was going to do. There's the interesting real subtle like homoeroticism that is known for vampires that plays itself out here at first i was like what is going on why is david so extremely worried about michael like meeting star i mean he challenges him i mean within instantly seconds of meeting this dude and he's like let's go on this race i'm gonna take you out and then it leads to him bringing him down into the lair so fast and you get the sense that like it's important to him. Like he likes Michael, like he wants Michael to be a part of them for some reason. Um, so I find that interesting, but it's not really deeply explored. The frog brothers are comedic relief. Uh, they're good. They're hilarious. They don't overstay their welcome. Thankfully, 
they very well easily could have done that. I'm glad that they were pulled back a little. I don't know what Feldman is doing with his voice, but it's weird. It's like this. <laughs> I, I don't mind it. Like, it's not terrible for me, but it's just, it's strange if you've watched any Corey Feldman movies because he's intentionally talking with this low voice. I think it's meant to be the character, right? Like, I think he's intentionally trying to act like this deep, older adult, like, you know, very strong man when he's really a teenage kid in a comic book store who wants to be a vampire killer and it's cool. So, you know, I didn't get a ton out of the family relationships in this one. It's fun. It's sweet. And it does enough to not be, you know, glossed over in a way that I think would be defer, uh, detrimental to it. But it wasn't something where I walked away thinking about any character and any arc that anybody went on personally. Well, and I would agree. I think it more than anything, it's an observation of what family looks like outside of that nuclear idea that the U.S. was pushing at that time. And again, context matters. I didn't know about this, and that's kind of what this article helped me give that context and, and appreciate it more. But you're right. We don't spend enough time with any of these characters outside of Sam and Michael, and even them not really that much, to really get a feel for having empathy or having a deeper level of emotional connection with them. That's okay. I think Schumacher is sort of giving us a little bit of a commentary amidst this fast-paced vampire movie. And unfortunately, that's a sacrifice. If he was going to go into more detail, this movie would probably run two hours, 20 minutes, two hours, 30 minutes, but you'd lose some of that pacing that makes the movie work. It wouldn't be what it is, and it wouldn't be special for what it is if it had that. I mean, that's the fact. Like, I'm not lamenting that it's not there. I'm just echoing the the truth that it's not and that's not what we're meant to experience when we watch this it's about a different experience there is one scene that i'm going to spoil it i don't have a connecting point if i was going to have a connecting point it would be this one moment but it's not expounded upon in any way shape or form but i wanted to ask you about it and it's it's my david moment david is briefly pulling being pulled out into the sunlight when the boys all attack the lair and they kill some of the vampires david is pulled out and his hand catches on fire and he pulls his hand back in and is screaming and is watching it burn and slowly you know fade out and there is a tear that comes down his cheek and i found that so specific that in that one scene one thing happens and it's never given any more context I personally felt that it was David feeling something for the first time and realizing like, oh my gosh, I actually can feel pain. Like I have not experienced this for a while now because I've been this vampire who lives forever and can do whatever he wants and can't be hurt. And here I am like, like almost like a a beautiful thing kind of reaction to like, wow, like I have a feeling but I don't know. I wondered if you even noted that moment at all, and if you did, what you thought about it. I actually didn't. I did not notice that, and and that's okay. I, I think but you're bringing up a good point, that there is something to be said about losing a part of yourself by 
sacrificing immortality for. And that's a, I think that's an idea that I haven't seen explored very much where <laughs> maybe in, I rewatched uh, Death Becomes Her because the, I guess there's a new a remake coming out here in the next year or two. But that's something that's explored, which is if you could live forever, is that really a good thing? And what happens to your soul? What happens to your emotional side? Well, you tend to lose that because you aren't able to finalize emotions. You know, when somebody dies, you're not going to follow shortly thereafter. If you've been married to somebody for years and years and years, if you're immortal, life just goes on and you're not able to, you can grieve, but it's almost like Highlander. You're just kind of like moving on and you have to find a way to just keep living, but living in a way that's not empty. And I think as a vampire, David probably realized that. I think he said, look, immortality does have a price, that there is a loss of life in a different kind of sense beyond just the physical, because that's obviously not what gets lost because I live forever. Well, one more thing before we actually finish up our conversation, I wanted to talk a little bit about the ending. This is something that I really, I forgot about. And it gets hinted at with the Frog Brothers talking about ways to kill vampires. Well, this is that mythology that Schumacher lays down with his, uh, with his script. They say in order to de-vampire yourself, if you're a half vampire, you have to kill the head vampire. And then anybody else in this case, Star and her little brother, I'm guessing, the little kid. I don't know. No freaking clue. I didn't get the impression that they were related. I just thought it was just a little kid that had also gotten captured. And it was one of those like save the women and the children scenarios. Uh, OK, well, we'll because go they're that. helpless. And that's how we saw people <laughs> in, in the 80s. But when they freak out and they become vampires, you want to just stab them in the, in the heart, which I would have too. kids you scared know, the crap out of me. The kid was like ready to go. Star was, yeah. like, resisting. The kid was ready to eat. <laughs> Sorry. He was. He was hungry. So anyway, they lay this they lay this kind of mythology down on, uh, on Sam, and they say, in order to get your brother and Star and this other kid back to normal, you have to kill the head vampire. And so, and so we're led to believe throughout the movie that it's, it's David. And, of course, at the end, it's not. In the end... It's actually Max, played by Edward Herman, who I just adore. I confess I watched The Gilmore Girls with my wife when we were dating. We finished it after we got married. And the late Edward Herman was phenomenal in this. I love him in pretty much most things that I see him in. And to me, that was a, a big reveal. It was a surprise, having forgotten it. But I love the fact, Aaron that it goes back to kind of connecting. I wanted us to actually be a family. And it kind of, it's that countercultural idea that here's a guy who is using being a vampire in order to woo this woman and try to create this nuclear family of vampires. And I think it was either Sam or maybe it was one of the Frog Brothers that said, yeah, it's the blood-sucking Brady Bunch that we're going to become, which is a great line. But I wondered, when you saw that twist at the end, did it surprise you? Do you remember it? And does it work to kind of finish off the story? Yes, it works to finish off the story. 
and it's an interesting point and one of the only kind of through lines of emotional kind of thematic things to think about in the whole movie. Like you said, the idea that Max truly just wants to have this twisted version of the nuclear family, but like even what he ha- what he has is not enough. It's not enough just to have the boys and immortality and such. He needs still is longing. He needs more than just being eternally alive. It's like the idea that you still need love, right? No matter what, you need the relationship and that, that type of relationship. So I kind of enjoy that, even though it's not really deeply explored, of course. I don't know that I remembered the twist. It was hard to remember. It was hard to think back and real and, and some movies I'll be rewatching and I won't remember because I haven't seen them in forever. What's going to happen? So it feels like I'm exploring or, you know, seeing a twist again for the first time. I don't know if that was the case. It would have been the case here or if it was my brain remembering it. But the thing for me, this viewing after seeing this however many times was frankly, I feel like the script and the plot and the way the movie presents itself actually makes it really obvious. And I can't walk it back and tell you if that's because I knew the ending subconsciously without even thinking about it or not. But it felt to me because the Frog Brothers bring it up right off the bat in one of the opening moments right after we meet Max. And then later on, it's kind of mentioned several times and they even try to like prove that max isn't the vampire and so the movie tries to use that you know faint to where it's like oh he's fine he had garlic and which is one of the best scenes by the way spaghetti scenes hilarious and they like oh they're wrong so it must not be him so that's fun but i just i never bought that it wasn't him like he was too creepy he wasn't he was too aloof and too weird and too not normal the way he would show up in scenes. It just never sold me on the character not being the the lead. It just made more sense to me. And maybe that's, again, it's movie watching brain that is evaluating the movie as I'm watching it instead of just necessarily like seeing it for the first time with fresh eyes. But I'm thinking to myself while I'm watching, well, it's obviously not David. Like, that's too easy. And he's not that kind of a leader. It doesn't feel like he would be like something else has to be there. There has to be another plot point or the movie's going to fall apart and be boring in the end. So I always assumed it was Max. And so for me, it doesn't have a huge like, ah, moment. And it's just kind of like a fun, okay, cool ending with a lot of fun gore and vampire kills. And then it's done. So that's kind of how it played out for me. Uh, but I understand that it might have worked a lot better the first time I saw it. Yeah, and I it did for me, even the second time, as I got about halfway through it, I realized, okay, yeah, yeah, I forgot Max was the, the guy. And so you're watching this with those rewatchable eyes, and you're right, that spaghetti dinner scene is probably my favorite because this is exactly what I would act like as a frog brother to try to prove someone wrong. Like I would have no qualms about making my parmesan my garlic look like parmesan cheese i thought that was pretty fantastic but what i thought was really great was the fact that it's almost like you're watching an m that Shyamalan movie knowing what the twist is and so you're looking for those subtleties 
I thought one of the great subtleties was seeing Max come in for dinner and Michael answering the door and he goes, well, aren't you going to be a gentleman and invite me in? To me, that's subtle. And if, the, if you're watching this for the first time, you think there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, you want to invite the guy in. You don't want to be rude. Well, it turns out that's a rule. You, know, you never invite a vampire into your house. And I think for me, even knowing that was coming, I thought the setup was pretty, pretty well done, especially, again, for a movie that wasn't getting deep dives and wasn't trying to go all in on any one particular piece or part. I think it hit on that same level of quality that it did for for everything else. So for me, it worked. I'm glad. And I think that it's meant to. And I think it's set up at least well enough to do that. And it, I definitely think it's not the movie. It's me. <laughs> yeah, it's you. It's you. <laughs> well, something else that you, it's also me, is the fact that we do not have connecting points for this one, obviously. It's okay. And with that, that wraps up another episode here at Feel and Film. We'll be heading back to Our Man Superman for some bonus content. So be sure to check that out, donors. And then in two weeks, the rest of you guys will get a chance to hear it as well because all of our bonus content will be available to everyone after two weeks of its debut. So excited to get you guys to listen to that. And then after that, we're going to continue our dog journey with the art of racing in the rain coming up in just a few days. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.